Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the sacraments to be outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces you intend. As we study and converse and think through them, God, we pray that you would increase the grace that we experience that you have intended for us all along. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so lovely to see you. And last time we were talking a little bit about ordination. Now I think I put out there we'll talk about some baptism today, if that's okay. But I do want to go back just a little bit about ordination because the interesting thing about us having seven of these sacraments, in some ways we could deal with them um, discreetly and say that really the Eucharist has nothing to do with ordination because they're completely different things. But I think that'd be a strong disservice because in some ways the way we understand the grace, um, the invisible grace becoming visible in ordination I think ought to inform how we participate in, and frankly are strengthened by the Eucharist. And the same with confirmation and reconciliation. So a few things I realized that we did not talk about last time with ordination. I think a lot of times it's um, because of my sort of rabbit brain that likes to just sort of go here and there. Uh, or maybe it's a dog brain that chases rabbits. I don't know. Uh, you, you know, we, we, the, the, the basic thing we say that happens in ordination, right, is that um, somebody who is called to ministry is now representing the church in a specific role. Church, we say with a capital C, and thereby representing God, right? Now, as I mentioned, there's only a few ways we do this, and I, and I think this is very wise, right? It's not like a priest represents God in everything she or he does. I mean, I really, I think this is very wise, right? I, and, and, and maybe you've known folks, <laughs> I, I get these oblique comments sometimes that are interesting. Um, do you ever seen people in their clericals doing all kinds of things, like shopping at the grocery store? I do that sometimes if I'm stopping in the middle of work, you know, like if I take a lunch break, and I'm like, oh, I need to get some carrots. I don't usually take it off, right? Anybody ever seen a priest mowing the grass in the clericals? Um, anybody seen a priest who wears the clericals, I mean, really like 24-7? I think this is actually, I, I've seen it before, I'm aware of it, but I think that's actually declining. Um, in fact, since Vatican II, you know, when nuns did not have to wear habits all the time, many of the nuns took the habits off. Uh, I, I don't just mean the Episcopal Church, I mean really in the, in the Roman Church, this is an interesting thing to think about, is, is when we wear the uniforms and when we don't, and what that means, right? So, um, my last church, which was, uh, uh, I mean, uh, my, my, my hospital that I was a chaplain at, was a, was a Roman Catholic-sponsored heart hospital for elderly, uh, typically elderly patients. And there were 12 staff chaplains, and 10 of them were nuns. 10. Not a single one wore a habit. And as soon as Vatican II came out saying they didn't have to, they did not wear those habits. <laughs> Let me tell you what, right? Uh, they hadn't worn those habits in years. And that was a mixed thing. And I tell you, there's something interesting about wearing this collar. Um, and wearing that habit. When you wear a habit, everybody knows what you do. Almost. One time, I was wearing my clericals and I went to a barber shop during my lunch break. And I sat down in the chair and the lady said, are you a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm married to one, um, but not exactly. In general, most people know what this collar means, 
And if you've ever wondered, you know, there's a lot of Episcopal priests that wear the white only, that doesn't have the black band, you know? See how this, there's this band here, it clips off. This is called a collarette. Supposedly people wear it who are Anglo-Catholic. I just wear it because people recognize it, <laughs> to be honest with you, you know? The tab collar is the most recognizable uniform, and you know, this is an interesting thing about being a priest and, and why we have to be really careful, right, with who's made a priest. To this day, I can walk into a hospital and nurses will violate HIPAA to tell me about patients. Now, shame on them for violating HIPAA. How, however, right, they're, they're doing it with the best of intentions, trusting, uh, trusting me as a priest, right? I mean, this, this is part of the deal with the uniform. Um, I, I'm told that, that the, the worst thing I could ever do is wear this collar on an airplane ride because um, the people next to me will really want to talk to me about something. Now, I, I, um, I'm one of those folks, I'll just let you know, who wears the collar during business hours and then takes it off. And, and that was, for me, um, good, good mentoring, I thought, you know, because quite honestly, not everybody knows what I do. In fact, when I've told a few people, uh, maybe I was uh, taking my dog to get groomed or um, they, 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 they looked at my ID. I was renting a car in San Diego this past week and somebody was like, let me see your ID. And she looked at my ID and she, which I'm wearing this in the ID. Um, it's the first person in, in three years that's been like, Oh, yeah, you're a priest? <laughs> and I said, sure. She said, oh, I've got the perfect car for you. Um, it was not the perfect car. So uh, none of the electronics worked, and it was covered with scratches. So, so that one might have boomeranged. Um, but there's this interesting thing about not wearing collars, right? Because in some ways, when we wear it, we, we, we theoretically are, are representing the church and representing God visibly, right? And, and sometimes we can do that in really good ways. So to be honest with you, if I'm doing something not in my work time that's tangentially work-related that I'm especially proud of, I might wear the collar. I mean, I really might, because I just think it's important to see clergy at things like that you know I just I do but um, <clears throat> I only wear it when I go jogging one <laughs> at the fall festival that we throw <laughs> and just because I think that's kind of silly you know like silly in a good way to see the priest is running in the race right I mean I sort of think that's I know that's all weird <clears throat> um, all, all that to be said right um, again I've, I've chased another rabbit is that um, in some ways, we, we, we have this tendency, going back to last time, um, to, to, to view priests as people who are above and greater than us. And the, and the truth is, we're just like everybody else. And, and the most important thing we can do is, is hold on to that, right? And, of course, we have a different leadership role, and we represent, you know, we're, we're supposed to represent God in different ways. But we're petty, divisive, mean people. You know, we just, we are. And... Um, I think hopefully when we wear the collar, we try to be less so. Um, but in terms of representing God, there's three things that we really do. We, we absolve. So you confess, we absolve, right? We, we bless you at the end of the service, and, and we do communion. And those are the most important times where we wear the collar, because during those times, we're really... We're saying words with our own mouth, but hopefully the role of the priest is to say those as representing God. Uh, as I told you, with the bishop who does those things, plus does confirmations and ordinations, the bishop uh, wears that mitre as the symbol of God's authority only when the bishop does those same things. The bishop never preaches in a mitre because when the bishop preaches, she or he 
is saying what she or he believes, not God's word to you. Does that, does that make sense? I think it's just really important to hold on to that, right? Because um, I will say that, that mother and father knows best. I think that's right in absolution, absolution, blessing, and communion, but I'm not sure it's right about everything else. You, you, you know what I mean? I mean, I think sometimes the reason we have orders in the church is so that you can hear in a human voice and in a human body something God's been telling us all along, and that makes it physical and tangible, right? The priest is saying, you may not think your confession was good enough, but, but it was good enough for God, so now let that stuff go and move forward. I, mean, I think that's why we need us. I mean, just really do. Even though I'm holding up to you that we're no better and often quite worse than everybody else. And you know that to be true if you've gone to church before. Okay. Um, the, the other thing that's really interesting, right, is that I told you that in ordination, something changes in the church's mind forever. A priest is not unordainable. The priest can recant her or his vows, but those can never be taken away. So it's an identity change. It's a rite of passage in, in the view of the Episcopal Church. Again, that's different from any other mainline denomination I'm aware of. Because in the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, and the Roman Church, you can be defrocked. We can never be defrocked. We can be inhibited, but not defrocked. And this is really interesting to think about. Interesting to think if other sacraments work like that. And that's why I bring it up, right? Is participating in the Eucharist one time a life-changing event, or does it only work a week at a time? Right? Well, these are things to think about, you know? Is it something that someone can say, your communion wasn't good enough? <laughs> you took it, but you were thinking about something else. I mean, again, that's the reason we tie these all things together is because they have insights in, into each other. And there's one other thing that I think is really, really important to mention. And, and you can talk to every priest, and I think they'll all say different things. And right before I got ordained to the priesthood, or maybe it was the diaconate, I was talking to somebody who I thought was a kindred spirit, and, I, and we actually are we're pretty kindred spirits. And, and she told me that when she got ordained, she felt like she ontologically changed. Like, this becomes really difficult to say what, what that means. Like, the Holy Spirit washed over her. She felt rejuvenated, like her mind. You, you know what I mean? It's really hard to ex explain religious experience. But she felt physically somehow different. Physically, when the bishop laid, at that time, his hands on her. I didn't feel any different at all. Didn't feel any different at all. The thing that was ontologically changing for, 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 for me was that I had this moment with 220 people who loved me more than I necessarily thought I deserved it in the room. And that then was like filling the well up for withdrawals later. You know, there were these people and I have this memory that, that we thought this was a good idea mutually, you know, and they supported it. Um, but I've never felt like when I do this business that I'm like shooting some electricity over the stuff, right? I, I, I'll tell you where I've had electricity is anointing people with oil. That, that's, that's the place I've had it. Um, and, I, and the reason I mention it is because there's many times we participate in the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, to speak for myself, I don't feel any electricity in it. I feel like that's... Well, that bread's a little bit stale. Or um, 
how interesting that the same wine tastes so different each week. I mean, I have thoughts like that, you know. And, and, and as a priest, my ordination, which ontologically changed me in the eyes of the church, it wasn't that magic moment for me, even though it is for many other people. I've had magic moments at communion, right? I don't have them every week. I think there's something actually to, to saying that. I'm not saying magic didn't happen. I'm just saying that wasn't my experience, that it was a discreet moment. Um, there are moments I've had as a priest that have been magic, you know? Just like there's moments I've had baptizing people that have been honestly more connecting for me than others. I want to raise that up to you because I think that informs sacramentality. I, I, I don't think we have the view that any sacrament is going to make you feel blank. And sometimes I participated in communion and felt worse about myself, even though the belief is that God was conveying grace to me. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever felt worse after communion? Good. Whew, just me. <laughs> All right. Anybody feel worse after... Um, no, actually, that's the only one we regularly do. Anybody feel worse after they got married? Okay, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I just want to name this up front, though, because, again, I think it's important to think about our experience and how we process it. And, and you know, um, my life every day is full of ups and downs, and, and I want to say the sacraments are, too. And what we say, though, is that um, these, these things represent, even though they're short moments in time, uh, the promise is that they're going to continue they're not going to be discrete experiences. They're going to be lifelong, even taking the Eucharist once, right? That's a lifelong trajectory of God infusing you with grace. Whether we feel it in that moment or not, sometimes our feelings change when we return to it. I know that was really strange, so I should, probably should just talk about baptism. Um, maybe it's helpful to tell you the history of baptism, um, particularly as an ordained Southern Baptist. Um, because the truth is, the word baptism is a made-up word. It was made up um, during the translation of the King James Bible in 1611. Um, it was made up for really good reason. Um, many of you know the, 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 the progression that in, in 1611, actually since, since the middle 400s, people started baptizing infants. Um, in the Bible, no infants are baptized, only adults are. Um, and there's a good reason for that. The word baptize is actually a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's a Greek word that King James left in Greek because the word baptize in Greek simply means to fully immerse. <laughs> you baptize cloths when you dye them. It, it, it means to dip and to submerge. So sure enough, when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, I don't care what the art tells you, John pushed him under the water, completely. Um, when the disciples baptized people in the book of Acts, when people were baptized, nobody got sprinkled. Nobody. They got pushed under the water all the way. Sort of like what happened to me when I was 10. That's when I had my adult religious conversion in the Baptist church. I got up in a big, you know, bathtub, um, and, and, and the preacher took me backward and pulled me up, right? And I totally went under the water. And that's what the words of the Bible mean. Why did King James not call him John the Immerser or John the Dunker? The, the, the answer is because 1,200 years of tradition between the 400s and King James in 1611 had stopped immersing because it's not safe to immerse an infant. 
right? You, you, you can't submerge. Actually, I've seen a video. Anybody ever seen this in the Greek Orthodox Church? Sometimes they'll take a baby by the heel upside down and totally dip the baby in the font. It's a wild-looking thing. The baby does not appear to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> although I can't speak for how that feels, it's a wild-looking. So I've seen that happen before, but in general, you know, it's just not a very safe practice. You know, it's something that you might get CPS called on you for, fully immersing your infant three times in your bathtub. Um, so they stop doing it. The question's why. Well, you, you know, in... Um, one of the earliest uh, important Christian thinkers, although this is 380 years after Jesus, is St. Augustine of Hippo, right, or St. Augustine, who wrote some great books like City of God and, and um, the Confessions, you know. And what Augustine decided, and, 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 and I'm giving this to you like blunt force trauma, is that um, something really bad happened in the Garden of Eden, something um, irrevocable. St. Augustine decided this not because of Christian history, but because St. Augustine was a Neoplatonist. That is, he followed the teachings of Plato, who decided, actually, that body is really bad and spirit is really good. Now, I want you to know this is not Jewish. And it's not actually Christian, it's Platonic. Body bad, spirit good. And Plato took that idea into church and said, well, I wonder how that happened. Oh, I know how it happened. Adam and Eve were totally good physically and spiritually, but then they did something bad. They sinned. And the moment they did that was the moment their bodies became corrupt. And, and bodies are so bad, decided St. Augustine, that that children are born with sin. Augustine is the one who came up with what we call original sin. It did not exist as a notion before him. So that's 380 years after Jesus is what we're talking about, right? Original sin. He decided that there was something called a fall. And specifically what Augustine decided is, this is true of every human being, so how does he get transmitted? I mean, how do you get born in sin? And Augustine decided it happened because of the moment, and, and I'm, again, I'm not I'm not trying to sound silly to you. The moment that Adam ate that fruit and disobeyed God, um, his, his sperm shriveled so that original sin is passed on to every human being because sperm is required to, make, to fertilize an egg, and that's where it is, so that every single um, human being is born with Adam's sin. And, and Augustine decided that baptism was not an initiation into the Christian community uh, like it had been in, in the 350 years prior, he decided that baptism was when original sin was washed off of you. Uh, that is, every child born is, and even unborn, is a sinner. And so uh, the only way that you can wash off that mortal state of sin is with baptism. And, and if you heard that and you had a baby and there was a 50% mortality rate, Right? What would you want to do as a parent? Would you want to wait until they were 30? The church told you that an unbaptized person goes to hell forever. What would you want for your children? So this is where infant baptism came from. Um, and you can't dunk a baby. So this is when we started sprinkling. Okay. I, 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 I am trying to be totally honest with you. And by the way, I'm a sprinkler. I do that, 
right? I do. Um, not because of what Augustine said. I, I, I do this for different reasons. It's actually maybe helpful to even back up before that. In the earliest Christian community, before Constantine became the emperor and Christianity became a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire, um, you had to apply for baptism two years in advance. And Christianity was such a scandalized religion. I mean, after all, people were baptized naked in the middle of the night, so, so people thought that it was this sex cult. Um, and they were, eating, uh, they, they were eating the body and blood of Jesus. Those are the words they used, so they were accused of cannibalism, right? Um, that Christian people had to be very, very careful who they let into the ranks as full members because they didn't want to be poorly represented in an already maligned thing, right? So there was this thing called the catechumenate, whereas a catechumen, you basically were an applicant for baptism two years in advance before you could receive it. Baptism was done one day a year on the Easter vigil, not any other time, right? And during that two years, you had sort of a shepherd who was already a member of the community who was watching you. And if you did not show consistently good morals or fidelity or commitment, the answer was no, you're not getting baptized. Start over again if you want, but no. So you could be a year and a half down the road, commit some sort of moral transgression, start over, if you still want to do it, right? That's very adult and not for children. Does it, does it make sense what I'm saying? That, that program does not work for children. Okay, so we made the, all this big change, and, and honestly, I don't think it's about right or wrong or good or bad. I think it's just helpful to know the history of how we got where we got. So, so this happened in the early 400s, really gained momentum about infant, infant baptism, sprinkling, etc., and that got us all the way up to, again to King James, and, and here now the Bible was being printed in the vernacular using the printing press. Regular people were going to see it, and were you going to tell regular people that he was John the Dunker, or was he going to be... John the baptizer. Because if I asked you what baptism means and how you do it, your answer would vary widely according to how you did it or how you saw it done, right? What does baptism mean? It could mean a lot of things. What does dunk mean? It means one thing, right? And around this time, of course, there were other biblical folks who got onto this. They were called Anabaptists, right? They were reading the, the Bible as well, and they said, well, wait a minute, he's not John. This is an, an irony, right? They thought that you could only be baptized sacramentally as an adult. So, uh, and, and they, were, they were confident of this for a few reasons. Part of it is they became familiar with tradition. I told you that originally at the time of Jesus, this was for adults only, right? And they learned that the word meant submersion, so they were getting baptized again as adults. Again, like they got baptized a second time. Everybody got baptized when they were infants. You know, everybody did. So they did it as adults, saying that the first one wasn't good enough or something. We call those people Anabaptists. Anna means again. So these were the people who were getting twice baptized. Ultimately, Baptists in the United States are somewhat related to that. In case you're wondering, but, but not, not actually. The, the Anabaptists are really like Mennonites. Anybody know Mennonites? And, um, you know, the, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch or the Amish, those, those are more direct roots to Anabaptists who didn't swear oaths and who were pacifists, right? I mean, that's sort of the origin of those movements. Um, so, 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 so what about us? Well, um, again, we kept doing this practice because it was really old, and then part of it now that we're still grappling with, honestly, and, and, and you'll hear this differently from priest to priest, right, is what does it mean and what does it do? 
I've already told you one um, major way of getting this, which is that some folks in the church believe that we're born in original sin, right? That we really are born that way, that, that there's something, you know, we've mapped the human genome in general and haven't found the sin gene, but we might eventually find it, or maybe it's invisible, or you know what I mean? I'm not ridiculing the idea. I just, I just want to say some people are still on the idea that we're born sinners. It may be helpful for you to know that that this is where the doctrine about 200 years ago, and it's only that old, showed up about the Immaculate Conception. Has anybody heard of this before? Do you know what it means, the Immaculate Conception? It has to do with the Virgin Mary's birth, not Jesus. It has to do with the Virgin Mary's birth, not Jesus. And the doctrine says the following. At the moment of the Virgin Mary's conception, God regenerated her father's sperm to be like that created by Adam originally and not the fallen sperm. I know that sounds crass. I'm just, that's the doctrine. So that Mary was born without original sin. I mean, that's what the doctrine says, right? And, and um, <laughs> which, is, which is fine, although I think the question is, of course what they're trying to say is, Mary was this perfect vessel for Jesus, although, according to teaching and doctrine, if Mary had been baptized as an infant, she would also have been the perfect vessel for Jesus. So in some ways, it doesn't, it doesn't quite add up why you need that. Is, it, is that okay that I'm saying? I'm not saying it happened or not. I just mean logically, it's a little bit weird. So, so that's where you can really chase some rabbits. If you think I do it, you can really chase these rabbits in, in, into this place, right? And, and I'm not saying everybody believes the following, but some of the problems with original sin um, as, as, as being what we're born into, and, and that's what baptism deals with, is you have this question, what happens to a baby that's, that's, that dies before it's baptized? And, and you know what the answer to that question is in strict teaching, don't you? The baby, no, the baby goes to hell, not limbo. What happens to babies who die in utero? They go to hell. That's the strict teaching. Now, you're not going to believe me when I say this. You're not, but I'm going to say it. Strict adherence to this doctrine is one of those things that makes... And by the way, I'm not telling you what I think about the following issue, but I will tell you, if you believe in this doctrine, understand you can have no tolerance for abortion at all. Right? Because aborting a child, even if the mother's health is in danger, even if blah, 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 is consigning the infant to hell forever. Okay? Do most people who are anti-abortion believe that? Probably not. But that strict doctrine is part of behind, partly behind that. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Um, I do want to wrangle with it a little bit, um, with original sin. Yes, ma'am. called circumcision only happens for boys. So, and, and that's to mark them as... As a covenant people. And of course, we're talking about in the Orthodox world, women are, in the Orthodox world, are not, are not on equal footing with men. Right. So they don't have an equal right. It's actually one of the interesting things about the Christian movement, right, is that early on, Baptism, I mean, circumcision was no longer required. And in some ways, people will tell you circumcision, uh, baptism replaced circumcision and did it in an interesting way in that baptism is, is egalitarian and circumcision is not. 
Interesting thing to think about, right? Anybody can be baptized, but only men can be circumcised. Now, if you're a Reformed Jewish, right, you have a blessing ceremony for girls, and girls often get a, like an American name, and then they get a, a Hebrew name or a Jewish name, so they have like two. But again, if you're, if you're Orthodox, you don't, you don't get that. You just don't. Women don't get that entrance right into the community. Interesting enough, as Jews, right, that happens when you're eight days old. So that's an infant practice as well, right? It's not fully adult. The only adults, you know, that, that started this were Abraham. He was 80 years old, and Isaac was like 13 when his father Abraham circumcised him. And those are their entrance, you know, again, the entrance rights into the covenant community. The problem with original sin, there's a lot of, lot of issues with it theologically, and I don't want to, like, beat it up entirely for you, um, Maybe I should start out compassionately. <laughs> Ever felt like there was something wrong with you? I mean, like other people seem happier, or golly, you hear this teaching in church about being joyful and loving, and just like that, this isn't, yeah, I don't know if that's me. I, I think there's this, this strand, at least in, in, in the tradition I grew up in, where I was made to feel like there is something wrong with me because I don't fit in, or I'm not happy enough, or I broke my coffee cup. You know, something like that just makes me think, it's me. And um, in some ways, right, when you hear original sin, it's like, oh, that's what it is. That's what was wrong with me. I was born a sinner. Um, so, so I believe that, but I'll tell you, having been baptized, I don't feel like there was anything less wrong with me. You're supposed to, but, but, it, but I, I just, I'm afraid it doesn't work. Right? I mean, because it's not like when that water comes over you, it totally changes all the habits and intentions you've spent the last blank years developing, you know? Or at least it didn't for me. Um, the other problem is, I think, with original sin, right, is that it just seems really unfair. I mean, doesn't it seem unfair to you to be born already in the negative column? I mean, you didn't even ask to be conceived, and you're starting off negative? It seems, I'm going to tell you, not just unfair, it seems, it doesn't even seem to me, it feels incredibly unjust that God would send a stillborn baby or a baby who dies for any reason to hell for being not baptized. That, I just, I, I can't live with that God, you know, because they have no control over that. So I don't like it. You know, what we grew up with was a modified version, which is, yeah, you're born with original sin, but you're not really accountable for it until you know that you're doing wrong and choose to do it. So in the, in the church I grew up in, we call that the age of accountability. When do kids really know that what they're doing is wrong and choose to do it? I don't, do you know the answer to that? Some people, like Augustine, will say they know it from the minute they're born. Augustine said that babies are, are, are proof of a fallen nature because they're selfish. All they think about is themselves. I mean it. That's, you can read the writing. When they're hungry, they cry, those selfish things. You know, and when they want comforting, they cry, those selfish things. I mean, never mind that they can't take care of themselves, right? So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. That's where the doctrines came from. Right? Is that babies are proof that we're selfish because they just think about themselves, even though, right, they don't really think all that's impulse stuff. Why, why was this important? Yeah, I think because, um, you know, when Augustine was writing it, and why is it now? 
you know? Uh, well, I think because when Augustine became a priest and later a bishop, what had really changed was the church had gone from being um, legally unacceptable, you know, like a persecuted religion 80 years prior. There was a persecution where people were actively looking for Christians and killing them to a tolerated religion, and Christianity itself was so diverse and different that they had to come together and have a council and have a creed to decide what they really should believe and what they shouldn't. And, and there's no way that you're going to go to a meeting and everybody's going to leave and say, yep, they completely negated what I grew up with, so I'm going to follow the new creedal statement, you know? I mean, uh, there was a lot of disagreement. And the other thing that had happened right before Augustine is that the emperor had not just decided that um, Christianity was going to be tolerated, but the emperor made the, the, the Christian religion the official religion of the Roman Empire. That happened in 381 under Theodosius the Great, right? So that's brand new. Augustine's writing right after that. And then there's this other thing that's happening too. The Roman Empire, which has been around and has been the greatest, biggest, best thing that anybody knew about is now all of a sudden being raided and sacked by the Goths and the Vandals, right? Like this is Attila the Hun. And, and the city's being burnt, Rome, it's being sacked and looted when Augustine's writing this stuff. So how can this Christian Roman Empire be suffering? What does all this stuff mean? And, and Augustine, I think, again, I don't think he's like a bad, evil-intentioned man. I just think some of, some of what I'm telling you that he wrote does not make sense to me, right? Philosophically. But experientially, it makes a lot of sense. There's something wrong with me. He, I think he tries to do that. Now, now, Augustine, and this is important to say, Augustine did not understand Jesus' death as a penal substitutionary model that we've pretty much now bought into. Um, there were lots of different ways of understanding what Jesus did. Um, I think what Augustine's doing, because he didn't grow up Christian, he grew up basically, like I told you, a Platonist. So he's this new version of Greek philosophy. He actually ridiculed the church as being just stupid until Ambrose of Milan taught him that he could read the Bible allegorically. And, and, and that's when he used his, his Greek mind and a lot of his Greek concepts and honestly superimposed them on a non-Greek world, the Hebrew Bible. And let me talk you through some of that with you real fast. Because this, I think, is really, really important when we think about original sin and what baptism does and doesn't do. Um, in the book of Genesis, um, in fact, in the whole Bible, there's this word create. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it turns out that that word create in Hebrew is a verb that can only be whose actor can be God. So a human being cannot create anything. Humans can make things. God can create things. Now, I know that may, you may say, well, what's the difference? The difference is theology. The, the, the belief is that God is the only one who can set in order the things that are changeless. Human beings can tinker with that, but can't fundamentally change stuff. And, and, and this is this way of thinking that, you know, I, I don't know if Augustine knew or didn't know, but, 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 but biblically, if God creates human beings in God's image and likeness, if that's how we're created, then the fundamental question is, can a human being uncreate what God Almighty has created? The biblical answer is no. 
Only God can change creation. Human beings can make something of God's creation, but can't change the fundamentals. Just let that wash over you for a second. And what that would mean, right, is that instead of us saying we're utterly depraved of God's image and likeness, that's a pretty audacious claim to say. It's like saying we're, we're as strong as God is. We can change what God created, but, but biblically, I'm, I'm just saying biblically, we can't do that. We can make poor use of creation, but we can't uncreate. That's the linguistic biblical argument, right? And, and that becomes a really big problem with original sin because what original sin says is that yes, Adam and Eve were created in God's image and likeness, and then because they did something, they eternally affected God's image and likeness in human beings. If you're Calvinist, this is letter T in tulip, T, you know the five points? T is totally depraved of the image and likeness of God. Totally depraved. Human beings are totally depraved. It's not a biblical argument. It, it, it makes sense philosophically. <laughs> you can see how we could get there, mainly because we bought into it for so long. It, it's just, it's not biblical. And you know, the, beyond that, on the sixth day of creation, when God looks at human beings, God's description is very good, right? God looks at everything God has made and says, very good. So then I think there's this question. If God has called us very good, can we say, God, you're wrong? Or is this, that's just what we try to do? <laughs> can we be successful in subverting God's label of us? And can we actually be the opposite of good in God's eyes? I think that that would be one way to redefine discipleship as we've told it, right? Now, here's the truth. I, I have an utterly delightful five-year-old daughter. Um, so delightful, in fact, that when we went to Disneyland with no nap at four o'clock in the afternoon when we were waiting an hour and a half to get on Space Mountain because the fast pass wasn't functioning, um, I was acting utterly depraved of God's image and likeness in the line. Uh, complaining, moaning, we need to go, oh, this is terrible. And my daughter was just absolutely happy to sit there in that line. Um, there are times where I've thought, like, I could throw you out a window, you know? Um, you, you drive me crazy, you're exasperating me because you're being whiny, or, you know, we've, we've had these moments as parents, you know? Um, to say that my daughter is totally depraved of the image of God, I think would be sinful for me to even say that. I mean, this is, again, arguing against this whole original sin business as we've, as we've given it. It just doesn't even make sense experientially, you know? The only way that you can hate a child is if you've decided that you hate children and you don't give yourself room to get to know them. And, and, and I wonder, Kathy, a little bit what you're saying is, I wonder if we haven't already made decisions about human beings that inform the way we relate to them. And part of our discipleship journey is unmaking some of those decisions, right? The way I grew up was that we're totally depraved, so everything we do is not good enough for God. 
you know, even when we do really good things, like let's pretend we give 10% of our income like I was taught. Well, you could have probably given more. You know, 10% is just the minimum anyway. You know, so good, you met the minimum. What are you going to do next year? Anybody have that, that kind of, you don't have to raise your hand. If that kind of religious experience has ever gone in your head, I mean, that's this is the doctrine. This is the root of that, right? Um, I grew up here hearing that God loved me completely. I was just com- also completely sure God didn't like me at all, you know, because what we learned is loving people and liking people are different things. So God loves us, but, you know, God hates what we do. God just gets sick of us being wearisome sinners, you know. Um, so, so maybe, and, you know, really what these viewpoints come down to, right, is are you like Thomas Hobbes? who says everything's bad in the book Leviathan, right? We're born bad. Are you like John Locke, who says we're a blank slate? So there's, there's no original sin, there's no original good, you make what you want of your life. Or, or um, are you like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says, you know, we're basically good, and, and our life is to cultivate the goodness out of each other. Now, the truth is, all of those things you can experience. You can experience people and say, God is a really terrible human being. Is a priest baptizing them going to make them great? <laughs> I don't know the answer. I've never seen that kind of full-sale conversion in a moment, you know? I think the early church, I think that's part of the reason you had to apply two years in advance, right? So that they could see the conversion over time, and the baptism was the celebration of all the work that went into changing the way you fundamentally behave to yourself and other people. I'm not arguing in favor of that, although, you know, we do adult baptism in the Episcopal Church. For me, the most helpful thing has not been this bit about original sin and whether we believe it or not, um, but, but, but rather, when I was in the Methodist Church, I've <laughs> been around a little bit, in the Methodist Church, they have these different, Wesley wrote about these different kinds of graces that are in our life. There's sanctifying grace and there's justifying grace. And there's, I think, another kind. But the big one is what he calls is God's prevenient grace. That is that God's grace operates in your life with or without your awareness. And that baptism is sort of the, the, the symbol or the initiation that, that God's prevenient grace is operating in your life. In some ways, this makes a good deal of sense to me about infants, right? An infant doesn't even know about grace as we talk about it, but it's there. An infant has no control about receiving baptism, really. You know, sometimes they cry, which I think they're saying we don't want it. I baptize them anyway. Um, In some ways, I'm pretty sure that's how God's grace operates. We may not want it, and and too bad, God's going to wash us with it anyway. You know? And the important thing I think we have to think about, right, is does God's grace for an infant or for us as human beings start when the water comes on us or is the water a physical symbol that the spiritual and invisible grace has been operating since the moment we were ourselves? Do do you know what I mean? The thing that becomes precarious about original sin and baptism determining whether you go to hell or not is that it sure puts a lot of responsibility on people instead of leaving the grace giving to God, which I think is the point of the sacraments, right? God is trying desperately to give us grace. So, you know, we've all known people that dallied in baptizing their children 
for various reasons. And was God's grace denied those children until the moment the water got put on them? Or does the water represent what God had already been doing? I mean, I think that's a really important question to ask. You know, and the reason this ties so strongly to the Eucharist is there's places, right, we've talked about this, that will only welcome baptized Christians to the rail. Um, but again, I think the question is, whose table, whose table is it who's welcome at the table, right? If it's God's table and, and God is creator of all, and God calls us fundamentally in God's image and likeness and calls us good, then aren't we welcome at God's table, whether we've received other sacraments or not. I mean, I think this, I think this is really good stretching thinking here, right? And, and I'm positive, you know, that um, 42 years ago, when the new prayer book was just starting to be implemented, you know, most baptisms didn't happen in church. They happened privately. Do any of you know, were you baptized in church or privately by the priest? I was baptized in church, but privately. Okay, like in the afternoon after a ceremony or on a Saturday morning. That actually was sort of how it mostly happened, either in homes or just around the font with only the family. And, and you know, part of what happened with the 76 prayer book, that new one, that new prayer book is 41 years old. You know, part of what happened with that new prayer book is that um, there was this real urge to have baptisms publicly because it was an opportunity to renew for everybody watching the baptismal covenant. It was this opportunity to say, yes, we're positive God's grace is available in this just beautiful baby, even if it's crying, right? I mean... Babies are just cute. We're hardwired to think that, right? So, so here's, look, God's grace is there in this cute baby, and I think this opportunity to say God's grace is supposed to be embodied in us as well, right? And we're making these promises. Most of us don't keep them, because honestly, you know, in a big church, you don't always know the kid or the family that's doing the baptism. Um, but we're saying that we're going to uphold this kid in their Christian life, and I think that's really the reminder we're supposed to uphold each other in our Christian life. And if baptism would do that for us, it sure would be sacramental, don't you think? <laughs> you know, I, I, in some ways, this is... I never know if people, never mind, I haven't had any controversy. In some ways, I think baptism is more for everybody else than it is for the kid. Baptism is more for us to say, that is the way God loves us, and that's the way I'm supposed to love my uncle, you know, who drives me crazy at Thanksgiving. Oh, these things, I'm going to renounce evil, I'm going to renounce wickedness. Oh, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be doing that, not just this little thing. I'm supposed to do that, Right? I mean, the words certainly only wash over the, the infant. Yes, ma'am. You know, that was a huge shift for me. Is, and, and important. Because I think that the baptism uh, is part of the service. Part of, reminds us of the family of God. Yeah. That we have families to raise each other and hold each other up. And that was just like something I had never... Yeah, you know what's really neat? What's, what's really neat, that, and I think this is this opportunity for us to continue to grow on, right, is that it's so easy for us to do this with children. It's not, by the way, it's not always easy, but it's easier us, for us to do this with little children because we presume children are innocent. And we don't think that way about each other. In general, when somebody does something 
we don't like, we presume they did it for the worst possible reason. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what's neat about it here, because I've seen this time and time again. In fact, I saw it this morning. I don't really know why. Um, you know, we've, we've been, my daughter's been absent the last three weeks, and she was in the nursery this morning. Normally at 8 o'clock, they didn't bring the 8 o'clock nursery kids to the rail, but, but she came and she was in tears because she didn't know who to sit with. <laughs> and sure enough, a church member saw her and was like, come here, honey, come sit here, you know? So, so in the family of God at St. Thomas, my daughter's got a lot of aunts and uncles. And I, and I see it, and what's amazing, right, is most people don't even think twice. They're like, yes, come on, honey. The growing point for us, right, is at what age will we stop doing that? Do, do you know what I mean? Because kids get less cute, and they get less expressive. They know to hold that stuff in, those, those feelings of isolation, right? Or those feelings of, like, uh, they don't want me to sit by them. We all learned that. That's called middle school, right? Uh, if you didn't get it before then, you got it in middle school, right? Um, and again, I think, I think the thing is, right, is, is how, we choose, how we think about people categorically really does inform the way we treat them. It's a really interesting thing that I have never been able to do. This is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Ignatius Loyola. Anybody heard of him? Founder of the Jesuits. He wrote this book called Spiritual Exercises. And he says, you know, that, that one of the spiritual disciplines we're supposed to have is to hear other people as positively as we possibly can. <laughs> this is a spiritual discipline. When someone says something that irks you to take it in the best possible way as a spiritual discipline. I can tell you, I am very practiced in the spiritual undiscipline of taking even um, remotely critical things and making them absolutely critical and negative. <laughs> I mean, that is my spirituality. We do, we do Ignatius Loyola's discipline with children because they, they don't know what they're saying. You know, this came up the other day. I submitted at the birthday party that we had. Five-year-old had said to his dad, Daddy, your, your belly is a big bowl of jelly. <laughs> well, they were trying to teach him manners, you know. Now, now, right, they're trying to teach him manners, and this is what he said. And I thought, you know, I mean, I would be really negative. I probably would take that really, really negative. Although, as a teenager, it would be like, Dad, you're fat and disgusting. You know, I'm, just, I'm trying to think about how that would change, you know. Um, of course, they were able with their five-year-old to say like, oh, like they're associating like movement and, and like that's a natural association and the kid's not trying to be critical, you know? But, but at what point, you know, do we, of course we know, we're all supposed to know better at a certain point, but what if we're not supposed to know as better as we think we're supposed to know? What if we actually stopped and said, you know, that person might look confused because they are, and I can help them, instead of they should know better than they do. And I, mean, I wonder if baptism isn't somewhat about that. You know, it's practice for how we're supposed to treat each other. Okay, um, this is not something that's easily easily definable, and, I, and I'm afraid I've meandered a little bit talking about original sin and, 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 and not original sin. You know, uh, 
And I talked about prevenient grace. And of course, what we, what we know is that there is a difference in us being initiated into this life of God against our wishes and control and cognitive functioning and us choosing to do it as adults, right? There's a real difference between this being chosen for you and you choosing it for yourself. So, you know, what we did in the church I grew up in is that babies weren't baptized, they were dedicated. We, we dedicated our babies to God. In, 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 in the Episcopal Church, in the, in the Roman Church, the Lutheran Church, Methodist Church, we, we, we do it differently. Um, infants are, are typically baptized in the entrance rite as an adult. Does anybody know what that's called? It's called confirmation, right? That's why we have it. Because it's actually holding on to both pieces, right? The way the earliest church did it was at the same time. You were confirmed and baptized at the Easter Vigil. You'd worked on it for two years. As I said, for lots of reasons, and, and, I've, and I put them to you kind of negatively, and, and maybe I should be more sympathetic to them, the, the practice got split so that baptism was deemed necessary, but that's when the sacrament of confirmation came up so that an adult had this opportunity. I think it's really important, though, as we think about both of those, and we'll talk about confirmation more in depth like in two weeks, is um, to think through when you absolutely knew what you were committing to when you committed your life to God. Did you know that when you were 12? I was baptized when I was 10. I was viewed as being in the age of accountability, right? And that was my entrance into the membership of my church is that I'd been baptized as an adult. Now, now we know a little bit about this, right? We, we know that as mammals, we're born with, with brains that are smaller than my thumb, that are called our reptilian brains, right? They have instincts in them. And that it takes us a long, long time for those other layers of the brain to grow up over on top of that, right? So, so literally, a four-year-old has trouble with things like conservation of matter. A, an infant, you can play peekaboo with because when you cover their eyes, they think you've actually gone. Right? They just, they, that's sort of how the brain works. You've been around a teenage boy. <laughs> you know they were, they're very much living in that reptilian brainstem, right? So here I was, 10, right? And I was making, I was, I was saying, I, I was committed to living this Christian life, and I didn't even have the capacity for abstract thought because I hadn't developed, you know, my neocortex or my frontal lobe. I mean, it doesn't happen when you're 10. It's starting. But in boys, right, this takes until you're like 24 at best. <laughs> I know some boys who are 45 that don't seem to develop that. Um, I might have been one of them. Um, I think this is this really interesting thing about age and tradition, right? Because for a long time, some churches have said you get confirmed when you're 12. Just out of curiosity, was there an age tradition for anybody here? Like in my church, we did it when we were 13. 12 or 13. Pretty similar, 12 or 13. Now go back carefully. You don't even have to be too careful. When you were 12 or 13, were you able to make that commitment? 
or, or was the commitment about your intention to stay together with God even though you didn't know where you'd even be going? Does that make sense? Was the commitment that you would or that you intended to? I mean, these, these are interesting things, right? What do we do the day we make marital vows? Do we commit that we will no matter what, or do we commit that to the best of our understanding, the best of our experience, our reason and spirituality, this is our intention? And there are things that could change that for us. We say we will. We say we will. Oh, man. Which happens at a boy. It uh, happens at 13 if you're a boy. If you're a girl, you can have a bat mitzvah at 12. Um, a boy can do it as young as 12 if his rabbi approves, and historically 12 was the age of majority in Israel. So, and part of this depends on whether today you're Reformed or you're Orthodox or you're Conservative or you're Zionist, right? And what your rabbi does. That's the interesting thing, right? So, so there's this, this variance of practice. In general, it's interesting that girls